0: Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the real estate nerds podcast. I'm your host, Scott Smith, and today we're with Amanda Hahn from Keystone CPA. Amanda is a fantastic friend of mine, and a long-time professional relationship with her. So Amanda, thank you for coming on the show today. I think you're going to share maybe a 2 per episode for a best deal and a worst deal and, and the bad beats for us. So when hearing about your story today, what do we need to know about you and your background to be able to get a full context of what these deals mean to you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. It's always really exciting to share stories that potentially help other investors. So a brief background on myself, I am a CPA, a tax advisor by day and a real estate investor by night. What's unique about our firm, Keystone CPA, is that we specialize in working with real estate investor clients. So the vast, vast majority of our clients are real estate investors from flippers, wholesalers, syndicators, landlords, across the board. We we're talking about right before the podcast, I was saying, you know, for my personal deals, fortunately, I haven't really had any extremely good or extremely bad deals that I've come across. But in my portfolio of various clients, I definitely have lots and lots of interesting stories to share. So today I've picked two. One that was a really good deal, both from an investment and tax perspective. And then another one that's a pretty bad one in my opinion for this particular client, both as an investment and also from the tax perspective. So Just a disclosure, that the stories are not my own, but they are of my actual clients, who will remain nameless, of course, for privacy protection purposes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We can talk in generalities about these people, but we just can't dive into specifically who they are or other information that would allow anybody to identify them, right? So that's how that works. For anybody wondering about how privacy works for attorney-client privileges or professional privileges into that. Yeah, Amanda, let's jump in to say what's the best deal? Like, What's going on with that investor before they start consulting with you and during that initial part of your relationship with that person?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great question. So this particular deal actually touches on a couple of things. It deals with rental real estate, getting a property to its highest and best use, and also involves retirement accounts, self-directed retirement account, which I know for a lot of our listeners are probably very excited or interested about that. And just a caveat, this is a really great deal, but it was several years in the making. So I met these clients, we'll just call him John, to keep it simple. So I met John at a real estate investment club locally here in Southern California. And at the time, he had some money in his Roth IRA. For those of you who don't know, money in the Roth IRA grows tax-free permanently for the account holder. So that means if you own rental real estate in there, rental income from cash flow, future appreciation, capital gains, all of that is tax-free permanently to the account holder. So this person came to me because they had some money in their Roth and they identified a piece of property kind of in a bad area in Los Angeles. He purchased that property, but the silver lining is that they were going to be able to develop on this property and get it rezoned into a multifamily. So bought a lot of dilapidated building, going to build Huge property on it. The benefit of the story is at the end of the day, it turned into, I don't recall the exact numbers. It was somewhere around $200,000, ended up being a property over a million dollars of which all of the gain and rental income is completely tax free to him till this day. And that's the power of identifying a property, being able to increase the value of it by rezoning and rebuilding on it but doing it in a Roth IRA environment where all of that is permanently tax-free to him and then you know, to his beneficiary or his kids down the road. So I thought that was a really great example of how just a savvy investor combined with some savvy tax planning ended up giving him the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. I've heard of other guys too that are using like options trading to be able to generate those kinds of like really huge amounts of wealth that are happening Inside of their IRA, is that a typical story that you see guys that are really strong at those types of strategies with their IRAs doing that? Like, how does that work?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say that's a typical story. It's a small percentage of people who are doing that because the reality is, even though you and I probably come across self-directed investing a lot, right, from our clients and from bigger pockets and other podcasts, but I think the reality is still not a lot of people are using. Self directed retirement accounts to its best use. In fact, I was talking to a brand new client today who had just under $100,000 in his self directed IRA. And I asked him what it was doing. And he said, nothing. It's just sitting in there. So the vast majority of the time that I see is people are interested in self directed. They move money over, but they're not necessarily always jumping to get into the next deal or trying to figure out what the best place to invest it. So it does happen from time to time, but I wouldn't say. The majority of the time, people are proactively managing the money in their retirement accounts. So hopefully, there's more education and more encouragement from the investment community to actually use that money once it's in the self-directed account.
0: Yeah, no, I think so, right? like We talk a lot about that. Just anytime I get on here, I'm usually talking about how tax-free investing needs to work, right? between self-directed IRAs and as well as the solo 401ks, if you have non-W2 income, what are options that are available for people for that? But there's a small segment of people that I've worked with that have, one way or another, been able to figure out how that they can take their IRAs, like the Mitt Romney types, and they're like, "How did you have a five million dollar IRA?" Yeah, because you only have like five thousand dollars or so per year that you're able to contribute. But there's a certain class of people that are like, "All right, cool. Well, I think what they're doing is they're leveraging their skill set, investing in general, to be able to find amazing." Caveats of deals that they will lock up something really cheap, like an option contract on a piece of property, for maybe like two or three, five, ten thousand dollars. That then they exercise the option, and then increases to be worth like five hundred thousand dollars because that's the nature of options. Have you seen people exercising those types of strategies?
1: Yeah, I have. And another one that somewhat resembles that is I have clients who use their IRA or Roth in note investments, right? So if the buyer defaults on the note now instead of having holding a note for $20,000 now they own a $100,000 property right when they foreclose on the borrower. So we do see that. I mean, we haven't seen that as much in the last year or two just cuz property prices in general, but that's something that we've definitely seen historically in terms of, you know, like you said, how does someone get from 10,000 to 500,000 <laughs> in their retirement account? But I think that what well, you said it is exactly right. The key is in combining the power of the tax free or tax deferred money with what are your highest return or what are your best deals? So one of the things that we talk to clients about is for any of our planning clients, we want them to let us know before they pull the trigger on an investment. So if you're looking into syndications or crowdfunding or an options contract or a trustee lending, We'd want to know because we want to know what is the expected return before you enter into the deal, and what are the cash flows, so we can kind of guide someone on what is the best source to deploy the funding for that. Like if it's something that's going to go from a dollar to a hundred thousand, then IRA or Roth will be perfect because outside of that, you might be paying hefty, hefty taxes. But the key is in knowing all that beforehand, right? If you already bought something. And then you go to your CPA later and say, hey, I already bought this. Can I put it in my Roth IRA? Unfortunately, the answer is likely going to be no, because that's already a done deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a lot of this stuff that actually comes down into planning, right? Into what you're going to be able to do. Are you guys also working with like a lot of clients that are using the Solo 401k options for what they're doing with their investing?
1: Yes, I love Solo 401k. It's one of my most favorite retirement vehicles. One of the things you mentioned earlier is for those who are self-employed or have earned income outside of their W-2, through an S-Corp or an LLC or a partnership, Solo 401k is a really, really great vehicle. We prefer that over the self-directed IRA because it's just so much more powerful. You can fund over $55,000 or $54,000 into it. You can borrow from it. It could invest in leveraged real estate and all of that asset grows tax deferred. So it's the same vehicle as an IRA in that you can choose what you want to invest in, in terms of alternative assets like options and real estate and notes. But it's a lot more flexible and more powerful. So for everyone who is eligible for a self-directed 401k or a solo 401k, I definitely recommend they talk to their advisor about it because it is a great tool for tax savings year after year.
0: That's awesome. Typically, it's just anybody that doesn't have W-2 income, right? If you don't have W-2 there's a way to channel it if you have non-W-2 income to be able to create a self-employment if you're good creatively.
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't, so if you have W-2 income, it doesn't mean you're excluded from it. So I have clients who you know work a W-2 job and they also are doing fix and flip on the side, right? So that's someone that's eligible. They can fund their work 401k and they can potentially also fund a solo 401k too. So whether you have W-2 doesn't exclude you from having a solo K, but in order to have one, you have to have some sort of earned income outside of the W-2 itself. So yeah, common things like we see in the real estate world, fix and flippers, wholesalers, syndicators who are getting paid acquisition fees, property managers. Those are just more the common ones in the real estate realm. But you know, of course, attorneys, CPAs, financial planners, (laughs) those are all really great income too.
0: Yeah, those are fantastic. I think that that's a great point for a best deal is, is how you can take a really good deal and make it into something amazing is by putting it with your retirement instead of your retirement funds. And if we were to shift gears to talk about what a worst deal would look like in that context from a tax investing perspective, what happened in that scenario?
1: <laughs> All right. So, in this one, I'm sure you might have a lot to say about that too, Scott, because it kind of deals with the legal side of things. So, we have this other client, we'll call her Lisa. She was someone who was fairly new to real estate when we started working with her. And when she came to me, she talked to me about getting into a creative financing deal, right? So she took some classes, learned about creative financing. And I know for our podcast listeners, you know, real estate people love creative things. Creative financing is one of the ones that you could probably take a eight hour or a week long class about different ways to get creative financing deals no money down real estate, those kinds of things. So she was involved in what she thought was a creative financing deal. In speaking with her, on my end as a CPA, I talk about the tax benefits of owning rental real estate. We get to deduct repairs and mortgage interest and taxes and management fees and depreciation, right? which is a paper loss that we can use to offset our rental income. And all that sounded really great. And I was under the impression, as was Lisa, the, the creative financing deal she was involved in was essentially a seller financing, meaning that she was buying a property from the seller with no money down. It was going to be our property and the seller was going to simply carry the note. So there was a, some kind of creative term where she was going to pay the seller a smaller amount right now upfront. And then over time, she was going to basically pay off the note. It was really attractive to Lisa because she didn't have to have a lot of down payment. And essentially, she didn't have to go to the bank and get a loan. So it kind of met all of her criteria, owning real estate, getting depreciation, tax savings without too much money out of pocket. So that all sounded really, really great. But as a CPA, a lot of times, we ask our clients to send us the purchase contract, especially in creative financing deals, because we want to understand how were the deals actually structured. We want to know, okay, well, if she paid $5,000, what is that? Is that a down payment? Is it interest? Is it principal? So those are the things that we want to know as a CPA because each of those have different tax treatments. And I think a lot of CPAs don't ask for the purchase contract because it's more of a legal document, right? In your world, Scott, it's kind of legal stuff. We don't really care. So in this example, we did ask her for the purchase contract and we kind of reviewed it and read a couple of times. A lot of it is legal mumble jumble that I don't really understand, to be honest. (laughs) But I'm looking for some key terms as a CPA, You know, like when do we take ownership of the property? What is the principal versus interest and down payment and all that? And after I read it, I sort of came to the conclusion that it was not a seller finance deal. And it was very different than what Lisa was describing to me. In fact, it looked more like a rental contract that was going to be some sort of a lease option where we're leasing it for... A certain amount of time and later on at some point we might be able to purchase the real estate. So it's sort of alarmed, you know, and I talked to Lisa and said, you know, this contract was just drafted by probably the seller with some kind of cut and paste here and there. It doesn't really reflect what you've told me verbally, which is we bought a property and all this we have we're paying interest. And it doesn't mention any of that, actually mentions that you're a tenant. So she had to go back to the seller. Now by this point the contract was already executed. right? She already paid her money. And she went back to the seller and said, okay, here's our concerns. But at the end of the day, it was essentially a signed contract. She already gave the money. Then the seller said, well, this is essentially the contract stands. That's what we both signed. And the issue with that is what Lisa had spent money on is she thought she was owning rental real estate. And she's going to have the appreciation of that property over the next couple of years. When In reality, she signed a lease agreement. A lease agreement which says she might be able to buy this property later on down the road, provided that she rents it and she's on time with her rent. And that's definitely not what she intended to do. So investment-wise, that was really a big downside for her. From the tax perspective, all those tax benefits we talked about for depreciation, owning rental real estate, getting capital gains, none of that really applied at that point in time because. She didn't own the rental real estate. She was merely a tenant. And if she wanted to, she could sublease the property to someone else, but she's losing out on one of the biggest benefits of being a landlord, which is taking a deduction for depreciation. So that was my example of kind of a really bad deal because it was misleading in terms of what she was actually investing in. And also on the tax side, she lost out on some big tax benefits. So I always tell our clients, Especially when you're getting into creative real estate or anything that's out of the norm, definitely have your CPA review your agreement, and then definitely, definitely have your attorney review the agreement. Because Scott, I'm sure if you had reviewed an agreement like that, you would be able to quickly tell. Well, this is not seller finance. Like we don't actually own this real estate according to the contract, right?
0: Right. Yeah, but it also sounds like she probably didn't even read the contract, right? <laughs> Oh, and we never see
1: people like that, right? Yeah. All of our yeah. clients
0: read contracts. <laughs> yeah, it's like it sounds like she didn't even read the contract. But there's like a cool way that I've worked with professionals before, because you know not everybody reads the contracts right before they get into it. And sometimes they're like, "Oh, it's okay. I think I got it." What I always tell people is to define somebody that's in the industry that's a professional, whether it's a CPA or an attorney, just somebody that's actually done the deal before, that's a professional, and then try to get into like a consultation with them. To mm-hmm. be like, spend that first $200 or whatever you can maybe pay to somebody to have somebody else look at this deal that has right. some experience in the area that's professional that'll look at it because they'll mm-hmm. give you way more than $200 worth of advice for a 20 minute phone call or, that, mm-hmm. or a 30 minute phone call that costs you 200 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Is there ways that you've, like when you're getting into something new, realm of investing, or say you're launching a new product line as a CPA or what you're going into that you have to consult other professionals? Because you don't know 100% of the field you're about to enter into?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So for us, most of our clients are real estate investors, but from time to time, I will have someone who does real estate, but they also have a business that's non real estate too, right? So those are the times that we consult with other CPAs that specialize. If this client is also doing manufacturing, then we would consult with someone who does manufacturing day in and day out as a CPA so that you're kind of on board with what's going on. And also, on a related note, I don't know if you see this a lot, but I have clients oftentimes, in the example of Lisa, if I would have said, hey, this contract, I'm not really comfortable with it, you should have an attorney review it. And they'll say, oh, okay, well, let me just have the seller's attorney who drafted it to review it and give you their comment. I always tell clients, I think that's a bad idea because if you're using the seller's attorney, they're representing the seller, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you want your own attorney or an independent person to review it on your
0: behalf? Yeah, well the ideal is is that that can be okay depending upon what the situation is, right? Likely what they're doing right whoever the seller's attorney is, is probably getting themselves in some pretty hot water by trying to represent people on both sides mm-hmm. of a transaction. Right, and if right. They can't do that, right? You don't ever really want to expose yourself to that as an investor to have to start asking that attorney all the ethical questions of like who is your client? Do you actually represent me or are you representing that other guy and explaining it to me? Am I your client? Can we have a side conversation about what's not good about this deal? Because any attorney looking at that, they represent you, are going to tell you all of the risks that are associated in it as well, right? But that's what you want to ask people. If you ever walk into a room with an attorney and there's some type of guys about that, ask them if they're your attorney or mm-hmm. the attorney for the other side. Having your own attorney is always the absolute very best. But sometimes there's financial constraints that go on with it. I will actually work with people on both sides of a transaction, but I won't represent either one of them individually. I represent typically the company that they're doing the transaction through. Right. And to say, this is what we need from a company perspective. So those are like the legal jujitsu, martial arts of word sugary to try to get what that attorneys do to be like, Hey, let's be clear about what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're finding people and from the, your, the clients that you work with, that it's even more widespread of the confusion. Because maybe by the time people are talking to me, that they're already pretty far down the track of like, oh, we know we need attorneys because that's what we're talking to you versus somebody else. So we actually already know that we need to be talking to attorneys. But there's probably a whole other world of people out there that don't even know. Yeah. That that you're talking to anybody at all. That's kind of the yeah. sense that I'm getting from you.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going back to the example of Lisa... Especially with creative financing deals, I think it's extremely important because more often than not, those contracts are templated. Maybe someone took a class and there was some kind of a a Word document and they copy and paste and then two parties sign. Our example, we happen to be talking with Lisa and be reviewing something. But again, my understanding is that a lot of CPAs wouldn't be looking at that. A lot of people may not even be talking to their CPA. They just assume, okay, I'm doing a seller finance deal and here I go. So there's so many opportunities for missteps. And it's really important that again, it's a huge difference signing a contract where you think you're buying a property versus you've actually signed a lease to eventually maybe
0: buy the property. In my world, I would look at that and be like, That's such a crazy thing to have happen. <laughs> you know, like how do you do that? But yeah. you know what? That's really not fair for me to say because I actually do have people all the time that I'll be like, Oh, well. I didn't do any of the vetting that I should have, right? <laughs> and that's actually a lot of people's worst deals that I find they get into from like here in the podcast. It's really about it's either like one or two things happen. Either they jumped, they knew a little bit of information and thought they knew a lot, and right. so they jumped into something, or they just didn't vet, and so they just kind of rushed into something thinking mm-hmm. that it was going to be great, but without vetting any of the information like at all. And there's probably something in there that, that also says, probably here's like a third prong, which is like, get some advice from somebody else that's smarter than you, mm-hmm. you know, about what's going on, have them actually look at this thing. And I think that could either be like, probably either like one of us or another professional, or it can be just another friend that's experienced in the same type of business that you're in, that you can take out to lunch, and have them look at, it. I mean, something. Right? It's going to be better than just winging it yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think the real estate investors are always creative, creative around acquisitions and financing and all that, which is really great. But sometimes it could come back to bite you if you don't really know exactly what you're getting into. Sometimes I tell my clients, you know, sometimes I'll get these urgent calls or urgent emails that says, Hey, I came across a deal. I met someone today, and today's the last day I can fund the deal. They need 25000 They need 50000 I need it immediately. And I always tell people, you know, that's a red flag because why is it last minute, right? You need to have time to do your due diligence. We need to be able to plan. It's not going to happen in the next 10 minutes. And if it must happen in the next 10 minutes, well, odds are that it might be too good to be true. So I do come across that a lot in terms of like bad deals is people really being pushed to say, there's no time. Here's a great deal. I need your money today.
0: <laughs> oh, well, yeah, those are obviously something that I would look at and be like, Nope, not going to do that. Because, <laughs> like the reality as an investor, you can't do those kinds of deals because it doesn't matter what the upside is because the risk of actually losing capital is so great.
1: Right. In that kind
0: of scenario, you can't take that kind of risk. It doesn't matter to me what you would tell me in that scenario from an investor viewpoint on it. Because when you look at what the really huge upside deals are that would come across at your plate of what you could be able to go do... If it's somebody that needed the money last minute like that, right? Why did they get funded ahead of time? Right? Why are they talking to you? Oh, <laughs> just get it? You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like the whole story doesn't even make sense. Like, oh, I happen to meet you in an elevator. This is so fortuitous. Right. I happen to decent deal? Do you have twenty five thousand dollars? Well, I have it for you. Yeah. Like that's crazy talk. I think there is quite a bit that goes along the lines for that. So I mean it really is. Those are really great ways to make bad deals. That's yeah. a lot of great ways to make bad deals for sure. Yeah.
1: I actually have another example story in that it might be more of a question for you than an experience. So we have a lot of clients who invest in notes, right? So they're lenders essentially. They might lend with their cash, they might lend with their retirement accounts. And there are often times when They are considering making a loan to someone or an entity under which the loan is not secured by any underlying assets. So as a CPA, I mean, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference from a tax perspective, because we hope to get interest income, maybe some sort of equity split down the road. And that's all great if everything works out. But one of my concerns when I talk to clients is always, okay, well, if it's not secured, then what's the worst case scenario? And why can we not have it secured or cross-collateralized by some sort of asset or another? So I'm just curious, in your example as an attorney, in terms of protecting the client or protecting their capital, are there anything that you do to help if the loan is has to be unsecured or that's what the borrower is saying? What are your recommendations for those types of investments?
0: Yeah. So if we're not gonna actually take a collateral piece for what mm-hmm. the investment that we're gonna make into it, then you have to ask yourself is like what is the guarantees, right? The guarantee could be that this guy is like the most honest guy in the world, and I can trust him implicitly with this because, like, he is the second coming, and there's nothing that he's ever going to do that's ever going to do me wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's okay. I'll take that, but just know that that's what you're lending on, Right. right? That you're giving him this money. So, the question I typically ask people, I said, like, you would need to be able to feel comfortable giving that same person access to your bank accounts give them the login info to your bank accounts, And if you wouldn't trust them with that, then don't make a loan to them that's mm-hmm. to Not to absolutely nothing. Right. What's the comparative? What's the comparison that you would have that's actually normal in life when you would ever get like allow somebody to do that.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And then why are we thinking, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So that's kind of where I would go with that. I think, I've had guys that have done deals where they will lend money into it where it's not secured by anything, but that it gives them like an option to purchase the asset or some other asset or purchase the deal at some future time, right? But then at least you're getting an option contract that you can exercise right. later. But right. these are the like kinds of like strategies that if if you find people that are first investors like ourselves are attorneys and CPAs, right? Like I think that we probably make like a pretty killer combination for a lot of investors in a lot of ways because. If you can come and show your attorney and CPA, if they're both in the same business you are and professionals, a deal that you're going to make a ton of money on, then really you can kind of kick it over to them to be able to say, like, what do I need to do from here? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because then, like, our collective skill set is able to figure out, okay, here's how this deal needs to get structured. That's not going to be cheap, right? By any means, to have other people figure it out. But you're playing the game of saying, I'm going to make so much money. I just need to make sure that this is going to work out, uh, Mm that the best way possible, right? And that's I get some clients that work like that too, right? Like I have a client I'm working with right now with an IRA deal that he did, where he bought a piece, like a beneficial interest from an estate, where essentially is being able to wholesale a piece of property that he was able to lock up the rights to for twenty five hundred dollars. He's going to pay the estate back like one hundred and fifty thousand, and then be able to sell it for four hundred thousand. So that's like a really creative way of Mm -hmm. navigating a beneficial interest through it. Come to find out though, there's all kinds of problems that we have to navigate with the custodian of the IRA because of how he set it up, getting Uh, into the deal ahead of time before he contacted me. So then now we have to go through all the custodian compliance. The underwriters in here are way too conservative for like what it is that he really needs them to do. So there's all kinds of problems that only happen after the fact, but that could have been thwarted. By yeah. just being like, oh, Scott, here's 500 bucks. Let me know how I need to get into this real quick, you know? And I've been like, all right, cool. This is what we need to structure, put in place, blah. blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, right? exactly. Um, I think from my perspective too, the biggest issue too that I see is not planning before implementing, right? I talk to people about that all the time on a weekly basis. Like, okay, well, you could have avoided this problem if you would have talked to someone before you did it. And that could have been a five minute conversation or a three minute conversation. And it's the slightest differences, you know, buying it in this S Corp versus an LLC or having the income paid to an S Corp versus your individual name. So very small things that have a huge tax impact on my end. I'm sure you see this too. One of the most common mistakes I see all the time is people form legal entities, right? Because we recommend it or because attorney recommends it. So you're in real estate, you need a legal entity for tax savings, you need it for asset protection. So great, we form these entities. And then the entities kind of sit in a binder on a shelf. <laughs> and yeah. then a year later, it's like, uh, what happened to the entity? Oh, well, there it is, but I'm not using it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's a beautiful entity. They ordered it straight out of legal exam. It's colored gold print on the front of it. It's well bound. I literally um, had somebody tell me that in a meeting the other day, like, oh, are you going to prepare like this super nice binder first with it all tabbed <laughs> on everything? I was like, no. That is not the way real legal work happens. That, yeah. that is not it at all. You know, It's like, we're worried about like do things hold up? Do they work? Do they accomplish right. what they do? If you're getting like stickers on your legal work and glitter on it, you should probably be like, uh, this is probably appealing to people that are different than serious investors. You know? I think we're just about out of time here, Amanda, but I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show. And and if anybody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah. Our website is www.keystonecpa.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-C-P-A.com. We have a lot of great free downloadable products and eBooks. So I invite you to check those out. We also have a book that was published by Bigger Pockets. It's called tax saving strategies for the savvy real estate investor and you can get that on biggerpockets.com or on amazon so check those out
0: awesome thanks amanda and as always this is your host scott royal smith uh, with royal legal solutions and this was the fantastic episode i think with doing a best deal and a worst deal for the real estate smart podcast thanks everybody for joining in today and we'll see you next time around that's all for this bad beats episode I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith with the Real Estate and Earth Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.